Father, we've been wrestling with a uh, hard topic, challenging, Lord, um, women in leadership. We want to be people who are biblical and understand what you want of your church um, and how we can live that out well. But sometimes it's not always as clear as we'd like. So we pray for some clarity, clarity this morning that you would uh, give us understanding of your word, that you would open our hearts and ears uh, to your spirit and that you would speak. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. As you know, the elders have put forth a, a recommendation that we amend our constitution to allow women to serve as elders at Waterstone. So we've been having this conversation a couple things to remind you of. This is not about the role of senior pastor. Our constitution limits that position to males. It's not about roles in the home or in the marriage, husband and wife. You can listen to what we've taught on those issues before. Uh, 2015, we did a series called Modern Family. We understand that this is a disputable issue and that people are all over the board in what they think about it and oftentimes they're very passionate about what they think about it. Uh, some of that is it's not always clear in scripture, as clear as we'd like it to be. Some of that is simply this issue affects so many dimensions of our lives and how we live. I do want to recommend as we get started this morning a couple uh, reference books, uh, resources. One is Men and Women in the Church by Sarah Sumner. This one on the right, um, great book. She kind of takes a, a mediating position between the two. Um, she tells a bit of her story. She's really good at handling scripture, does that well. But it's, it's an easy read. Um, I'd highly recommend if you only read one thing, this is what you'd want to read. The other book is not an easy read. It's far more technical, but it is absolutely fantastic. If, if this is an issue that you really want to understand, uh, slaves, women, and homosexuals exploring the hermeneutics, hermeneutics is just how you interpret scripture. He looks at how we take scripture and, and figure out what is applicable across culture. What's the transcultural universal application that gives some great principles. And he uses the issue of slaves. Why has that changed for Christianity? Why has women changed from his perspective? And why not homosexuality or homosexual marriage and he explains that from the text really well. This book has had a profound impact on me in terms of how I read the scriptures. Highly recommend it. But it's a little harder to read. So, One other note to let you know as I put these messages together one of the resources were a couple messages done by Brian Wilkerson. He's the, the pastor at uh, Grace Chapel back east. Um, actually went to school with Brian great guy, good preacher, and some of his structure I stole and some of his key ideas I stole just because I thought they were good. So I want to give him some credit uh, for his, his input and messages and insights. Uh, we talked about, let's review just a little bit, we talked about last week there are actually two uh, ends to the spectrum on this issue, uh, and they've been labeled. One is the complementarian side, the other is the egalitarian side. The complementarians teach that men and women are created equal in value, but in calling, the Bible excludes women from certain ministry position and roles within the church. So people who are, are firmly in this camp, are uncomfortable with women being elders, are comfortable with 
women preaching are not comfortable with them leading any ministry that has men involved. Um, they just think that those roles for women in the church need to be limited and women need to graciously submit to the servant leadership of the man in the church. Um, the other side of the spectrum is egalitarianism. It says men and women are created equal in value and in calling and thus are free to use their gifts within the church for any role or position for which they are called and qualified. People uh, solidly in this camp have no problems with women preaching, leading ministries, being senior pastors, teaching theology in seminary and Bible schools. And there are people all between those two ends of the spectrum who nuance their position. And I told you last week that my thinking on this position over time has changed. I, I was a bit in the complementarian position, uh, was fine if we didn't have women elders. I have grown more and more uncomfortable with that position. And I was trying to explain to you some of the reasons behind that shift. And last week I talked about the first reason for that is just the big picture of scriptures. And we talk about that around here all the time, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that there's this trajectory in scripture of pushing back the curse. In Genesis chapter one, we find out that men and women are created equally in the image of God, have equal value, and are given the responsibility to be co-regents with God co-rulers over his creation. That gets distorted in the fall in chapter three. And one of the places that is distorted is in the relationship between men and women. There we're told now that men will rule over women and the woman's desire will be for her husband. The word desire actually could be translated dominate. She's trying to dominate, he's trying to rule, and the whole relationship is tainted. The rest is, and there's lots of other consequences as well. The rest of the story of scripture is the story of God pushing back the curse against that consequence and other consequences. And we talked about how God has used women in that process and talked about how radical Jesus was in his perception and understanding of women and how much value he put on them. And then we got to Revelation chapter 22 verses three through five, where we learn that in the new heavens and new earth, uh, that we actually are going back to the garden in a sense because now there is no longer a curse. No longer will there be any curse. And then at the end, and they, both men and women, will reign forever and ever. We again are co-regents. And that's what we're working towards as the curse is being pushed back as God's kingdom is manifested through his church on earth. One interesting example of that has to do with the, the priesthood in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, to be a priest, you had to be part of a certain tribe and you had to be male. In the New Testament, that is, this, that is changed by the gospel. Right, First Peter chapter two verse five tells us that we all, men and women, are being built into a royal priesthood. The gospel changes everything. Now both men and women are priests, and both men and women, according to Hebrews, have access to the holy of holies. And in fact, Revelation twenty verse six says that there will be priests there in heaven, in the new heavens and earth. We will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with Him curse is always being pushed back by the implications of the gospel. And then last week I jumped to the big picture of how women are being mistreated in the world. And I know that some of you felt a bit manipulated by that. Um, 
didn't understand the connection, thought I was being a little unfair in the application. Well, I'm not sure I was all that clear as to how it fit. Uh, I can understand you feeling manipulated. That was not my attention intention at all. I really debated uh, whether or not to talk about that, uh, the mistreatment of women in our world. And then I read an apology that Michael Kuzikret wrote uh, for Men to Women. Um, I want to share with you just a little of my heart as to why I did that. I I was not trying to uh, overpower you or manipulate you emotionally, but I I did want to address the mistreatment for three reasons. One, I wanted to capture some of the emotion um, that is behind this issue. One of the things that's happened to me as I've wrestled with this, I have talked to a lot of women in our church and on our staff. And I'm a little thick-headed, but I think I'm starting to understand that for them, this is not simply an intellectual exercise. It is for me sometimes. Sometimes it's just an academic thing. I think, oh, this part fits here, and this, oh, you got this solved. But it is not that for them. This touches them deeply. It touches them emotionally. It touches their sense of value. It touches their identity. Some of them are angry. Some of them feel the, the church make well. The church makes some of them feel inferior. I, I remember a heartbreaking conversation I had with a young gal on our staff, and she told me how this issue had made her so angry because she's reading these texts and she doesn't get it, and then she looks at how she's been treated in the church and. Uh, um, she, she said, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm wondering whether or not God loves me like he loves a man. And I thought, wow, that's not okay. It's just not okay. Second reason I went there is people in our world see how women are mistreated around the globe. And they see it as oppressive. And when the church limits women, whether it's justified by biblical texts or not, they link it to this larger reality. And thus, for them, the church is seen as an oppressive institution. And whether we like it or not or agree with it or not, it's the reality of their perception. And what we must understand in that is that this connection, which we miss, but they may see, becomes a huge stumbling block for the gospel. They want nothing to do with a religion that in their mind oppresses women. And we have to deal with that. The third reason I went there is I felt it was a fair application of the point I was making about the curse being pushed back. I thought it might be good and healthy for us to ask that question of us. Are we pushing back the curse as a church and as individuals when it comes to how we treat women in our community, in our church, in our own very, our very own lives? Uh, um, I mean, we are to be a community that is living out the values of the kingdom, trying to push the curse back. Are we doing that well? And the apology by Michael Kuzik I read simply because I thought it was a way of affirming what women were feeling. And I've heard that throughout the week. Just numerous women have come and talked about how that identified their experience. And quite honestly, as I was preparing for for communion, I thought it gave me an opportunity to really wrestle with some things in my life. I mean, I fall into the trap of objectifying women, and that's wrong. Uh, 
And I thought, I have to wrestle with that as I prepare to go to the table. So my thinking may have been flawed. If I hurt you in the process, I'm sorry. That was not my, my intent. So back to what has made me shift. Uh, I talked about the big picture of scripture. Two others, one is a different understanding of key text, perhaps a deeper understanding, and then a historical perspective. So let's talk about some of the Bible passages. And this is really important because one of the things I want you to know that is true about Waterstone is we want to be biblical. We hold the, the scriptures, the Bible, as true. We work really hard to interpret them well and apply them to our lives. We believe that we have to obey the scriptures whether we like it or not, whether it grates against us, whether we understand all the implications of it or not. Uh, that's our priority. So, so whatever position we take on this issue, it has to be founded in the scriptures. Um, so we want to go there. And I want to talk about two passages, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 9 through 15, the one that was read, and then also a little later in chapter 3, talks about qualifications for elders. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 2 is a tough text. Um, it is not easy to understand. And, and quite honestly, I'm going to give you my best shot, my, my best understanding of the text, and I will admit up front, I may be wrong. It won't be the first time if I am. Um, it happens a lot, more than I like. But I, I'll share with you what I think is going on in this text. And it's changed. I mean, this text is the text that says a woman is, uh, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. And then he seems to ground that prohibition in the order of creation. And I thought to myself, if Paul takes this back to creation, that Adam was created first and women was deceived, then we have to make it a universal principle. I didn't understand why those two things would mean a woman can't teach or exercise authority, but it seemed that's the universal principle. So didn't like it, but thought that's where the text led. That has changed for me. I no longer believe that's what Paul is arguing, so I want us to look at the text. Now, the key principle you follow when you're looking at a text is to take the text at face value. In other words, uh, you read a text and you take its straightforward meaning and then apply that. And that's the problem with this text is you can't do that. And nobody does. Nobody takes this text at face value. Let me explain. Verse 9, it says, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, with braided hair, with, uh, not with braided hair, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul's saying, don't, don't braid your hair. How many braid your hair? I don't, but for other reasons. <laughs> but, but it says we shouldn't braid our hair, so why are you braiding your hair? How, how many uh, have on their wedding ring? Gold, right? Paul says we're not supposed to wear gold. That's the, 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 the plain meaning of the text. So why are we doing it? Oh, you, you see, well, Nick, it doesn't really mean that. Okay, well, now you're telling me it doesn't mean what it says it says, and you probably are right, but now we're nuancing the text. Or verse 11, let a woman receive instruction quietly with entire submissiveness. Is that really how we want women in the church to learn? 
just to lay down and take whatever we say, no matter the logic or, or how scriptural. No, we want them to wrestle. We want them to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, who Paul says were noble because they wrestled with him about who Jesus was and took it back to the scriptures. And that's what we want our women to do. But that's not what this text says. Verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now what we say is, well, that only applies to the church setting in public speaking in front of the congregation. And I say, really? I didn't see that there. It just says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. And the context he's been writing to, he has just told men he wants them to raise hands in prayer everywhere. So why wouldn't the prohibition be for everywhere? Yet we sit under women in colleges. Some of the best teachers we have are women. We have women who lead businesses and are CEOs. Oh, you say that's not, that's not the church context. Well, he's just writing generally. If we're gonna take it at, at face value, let's apply it at face value. But nobody does that because that kind of application leads to an absurd position. It probably is not what Paul is saying. And then it says women should be quiet. We don't follow that. And it's a good thing. We don't want women simply to be quiet in church. We have too much to offer. And then verse 15. But a woman shall be saved through the bearing of children. How many are banking on that one? None of us. But that's what the plain meaning of the text says. But we know that can be correct because in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that we're saved by faith, not by works or having kids. So no matter who you are, when you come to this, you have to nuance it. Or you just say, Paul was wrong. But I don't think Paul was wrong. You have to understand that when Paul writes a letter to a New Testament church, it is what we call occasional literature. It's written to a particular situation. And Paul knows what's going on in that situation. He's writing to it, but he doesn't always fill us in on the details. It's like listening to one side of a phone conversation. Has that ever happened to you? You're in a room, somebody picks up their cell phone, and they're talking, and you can't hear the person on the other side, and you're trying to fill in the gaps. What's really going on in the conversation? That's exactly what we're left to do here. We have to figure out what's going on in the situation that Paul is writing to and kind of fill in the gaps. And the better we can fill in the gaps, the better we can understand what Paul is trying to say. So we have to care what's going on. We have to, uh, in the situation, in the occasion, in the context, in the culture, then we have to figure out what he's saying to that situation. What, what did this mean to the original audience? And then we have to figure out what's the universal principle for us today. What is cultural? What's transcultural? And how do we apply that? But the whole key to that is figuring out the other side of the conversation. So what is going on in Ephesus? We know that uh, Paul is writing to Timothy. He's a young pastor. He's serving in the city. We know of Ephesus. We know some about that city. We know that there was a particular religious climate there, Ephesians, in, in, in Ephesus, sorry. Acts 19 tells us what was going on a bit. There, there is this religious cult led by a goddess, Artemis. Um, there's some recent scholarship 
that has really helped us. Uh, Gary Hogue has done research on a novel uh, we call Ephesaca or the Ephesians tale written by Xenophobe. Uh, they used to think it was dated late, about 150. They've reassessed that. They think it was actually written about 50, near the time First Timothy was written. And there's some interesting connections between this novel that was written in Ephesus for Ephesians and it's describing kind of the cultural setting, what's going on in the religious climate. There's some words used in that novel, very rare words that are also used in First Timothy. And suddenly that novel is giving us some insight into the culture, the other side of the phone conversation. And that's helping us. We know that the cult of Artemis, or, or the Romans called her Diana, is uh, a religion that was centered around this woman deity, and women played the prominent role in the cult. Those who served in the cult aspired to rise to positions of authority where they could promote the heresy of the cult, and they vied for those positions of authority. Now that's some of the context. Now, with, with that bit of understanding what's going on, let's go back to the text and see if we can make a little more sense of it. Nine and Cents says, a woman should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, but not with braided hair, gold, or pearls. The word here for braided actually doesn't mean braided. It actually means plated. And that word is very rare, and it's also used in the Ephesians tale. And in the Ephesians tale, we're told about this procession that would go on in Ephesus where all the women in the city would try to imitate in their dress the dress of Artemis. They would put on really fancy clothes. They would braid up and plate their hair and plate it in gold because that's how the goddess looked. And then they would join this procession and they would vie for prominence. Now Paul is writing to women who have come out of this cult so he says to him, look, what we want people to notice about you is not your plated hair that's up on top, not your ostentation dress, not the gold that you've mixed in. What we want them to notice about you is your godliness, and you show that by your good works. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Really, it doesn't have much to do with braided hair at all. It's, it has to do with being women who are godly and do good works. Then he goes on, verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, it's radical to have a woman learn in that culture because most of the women were uneducated. And the women in Ephesus, because they were part of this cult, were brought up on the heresy and the myths of the cult. That's what they knew. So Paul is saying, look, now I want you to, to learn and be submissive to what you're taught because what you've been taught about the world and this goddess and even how the world was created is not true. So right now, you don't know enough to do anything but to be quiet and to learn. They're coming out of the cult. So he's saying, don't promote the heresy you've been taught, but in peaceful submission, take information in. And then you get to verse 12. Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, one of the things I'm pretty convinced of is that this is not a ban on all teaching or the exercise of all authority. Why? Because in other places in Scripture, women 
do both. They teach and they exercise authority. Paul praises Priscilla when she's teaching Apollos about some of the realities of following Jesus and who he was. Junia is called an apostle in Romans 16, 7. Now, she's not one of the 12, but being an apostle in the early church is a position of authority, as is being a deacon. And Phoebe is called a deacon. Women functioning in places of authority. So Paul must not mean that. Or you can go to 1 Corinthians 11, and there we're told that women are praying and prophesying in the church. And the word there, prophecy, means foretelling God's word. It's actually more authoritative, more authoritative than preaching. Because they're saying, this is God's word, and this is how it's revelation. This is God's word, and this is how it applies to our world. That's an authoritative act. And Paul is, is sanctioning that, and probably because back in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came, Peter says, the Spirit coming upon men and women and them prophesying is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel. Picture of the coming kingdom. So they're teaching, and they're exercising authority, it's also important to know that the word used here for authority is a strange word. It's the only time that word is used in the New Testament, it's the Greek word authentane. And it's not the normal word for authority. When we're told that Jesus taught with authority, the word there is excusa. This word is different. And it has uh, tinges of a notion of usurping or dominating uh, a certain kind of authority. With that, the Greek grammar in this passage actually links teaching and authority together so that uh, the two words mutually define each other. It's a construction that Paul uses in 1 Timothy many times. So it's not just teaching or just authority. It, it probably is best rendered, I do not permit a woman to be the authoritative teacher. I think what he's saying is, look, I'm not going to let a woman be a domineering, authoritative teacher over man, over men. Um, that's the kind of role you played in the cult. And right now, you shouldn't be playing that role because you're uneducated and you've been brought up in this heresy. Now I want you to, to, to learn and to understand the Christian faith. I think the universal application we take from that is that we're to let only qualified people be the authoritative teacher in a congregation. And probably nobody should be in a position where they're dominating or usurping authority over others. So one minute, wait a second. He, he, he takes this back to creation, though. He says they shouldn't be the authoritative teacher because Adam was created first and Eve was deceived. Now, here's the problem with that, and it's the problem I've always wrestled with that text. If you say that's the reason, it almost makes no sense. What is it about being uh, created first that gives you the authority to teach? Why? If we think the order of creation dictates who should be in the teaching role, then we should be listening to animals because they were created first. 
He said, well, Nick, you don't understand the culture. There was this thing called primogenitor, that the firstborn had certain rights. And that's true. You see that in the Old Testament. But that was connected to the culture. The reason they did that, they were an agricultural society that had no safety net. So if you divided up the inheritance between all your kids, soon you depleted all the resources of the family. And nobody could survive. So the parents would say, no, we're going to give it to the firstborn. And the firstborn becomes responsible for the family and, oh, by the way, becomes responsible for us. It was a way of accumulating the resources so that the family could continue to survive in a tough situation. And by the way, how many of you have said in your wills that you're going to give all your inheritance to your firstborn? No. You would see that as radically unfair. Why? Because we're not in an agricultural setting where you have to accommodate and accumulate the resources for this family to survive. We spread it out because that works. That really can't be the justification. Or how, how about this issue of Eve being deceived first? What about her being deceived means women shouldn't teach? What happens when people wrestle with it? They, they say, well, there must be something about women that makes it wrong for them to, they must be more gullible or they must be more emotional or, or they just aren't as smart as a guy. Is any of that true? Sociologically, they've done studies. None of that's true. None of the stereotypes are true. They're just wrong. Well, it, then, then Why? Do you really want to say, well, Eve was deceived. Adam was not. He sinned with full understanding of what he was doing. Okay. <laughs> but Eve will be the one punished. That makes no sense. What if what Paul is doing is not justifying his reason for only having men teach at this point, not by the order of creation, but rather by refuting the myths that the cult taught. What if they say, I'm not allowing these women to teach right now because all their lives, they have been taught that Artemis, the goddess, was the one created first. And all their lives, they have fought, been taught that the one who was deceived and sinned first was the man. And if you go back to the cultural setting, that's exactly what you discover, that Artemis the goddess was the one who was in the cult designated as the one created first. And that Ra, because they combined the creation accounts with, there was a, a, a temple of Isis, which is an Egyptian god, and that, that creation account taught that Isis or Artemis, because they get combined, was created first, and that Ra, the man, was the one deceived. And... Paul is simply saying, look, I'm, I'm not letting women teach right now because if they teach right now, they're going to teach what they've been taught and it's, uh, it, it's heresy because they're teaching that women were created first and the man was the one deceived and actually, no, Adam was created first and the woman was the one deceived. I mean, they're just off in their understanding so they can't, they can't teach right now. And suddenly that makes, makes sense. And then you get to verse 15. It says, yet she will be saved or preserved, protected through childbearing if they continue in faith. The cult taught 
that Artemis was a vengeful God. So much so that when they had the procession, all the women participated because if you didn't participate in the procession, if you didn't keep the purity rules, if you didn't become part of the cult, God, Artemis, was going to take her vengeance out on you. And she was known as the God of childbirth. Times noted as a midwife. So what's happening? These women are coming out of the cult. They're not participating in the rituals anymore. And they're scared to death of this goddess taking her vengeance out on them and scared that she's going to take it out in their pregnancy. And Paul is saying, look, you don't need to be nervous. You will be preserved through childbirth, through your pregnancy, if you have faith. And then live that faith out with love and obedience. And suddenly this verse that we don't know what to do with makes all the sense in the world when we understand the other half of the phone conversation, what's going on. Gary Hogue writes this. He's the guy who did the research on the Ephesian tale. People debate the role of women in ministry using 1 Timothy 2 through 9 through 15. If anything, my study has revealed the fact that the social realities in view that are linked to the language of the text are not so much about the modern function of women in ministry as they are about demythologizing the life for the Ephesian women who abandon the cultural and cultic ways to follow Christ. He's, he's writing to these women in this church that have come out of this cult and giving them a new way to operate. When you understand that, the text makes sense. Now, a couple things I want to note here. However we handle this passage or conclusion we come to about it, we need to do so being careful and a bit tentative with our application. Because the passage really isn't clear. And we may think we know what's going on, but we weren't there. And understand, secondly, that this is the only passage in the Bible that possibly argues explicitly that the order of creation instills authority in man over a woman. Yet how we traditionally have treated women in the church is rooted in this understanding of the passage that creation order dictates men should be in authority. And it's not taught in other passages. So here's the key question. Is it reasonable to formulate such a restrictive doctrine that keeps half of our congregation from using their gifts fully on a passage that is unclear and difficult and does not seem to fit the trajectory of Scripture? Do we really want to do that? Well, you say, Nick, 1 Timothy 3, when he gives us the qualifications for elder, he, he just assumes that the elders will be men. I mean, he says they must be a husband of one wife, literally a one-woman type man. Well, one, Paul's probably adapting to the culture. Women were uneducated. You wouldn't put them in a position of leadership because they've been taught the heresies of the cult. And in a patriarchal society, that wouldn't go over very well. But the two, the fact that they should be male is not a necessary implication. It's a possible implication. 
And notice the other possible implications. It, it could be not only that they, they be the husband of one wife, but then they must be married. And if their children are to be obedient, not must they only be married, but they also must have a family. And yet we've never made those criteria for being an elder. We never said you had to be married. We never said you had to have children. Those are possible implications, but not necessary. Male, being a male is a possible implication, but not necessary. And then later on, you get qualifications for deacon. And the same criteria is given. They must be the husband of one wife, a one woman type man, to be a deacon. And then you go over to Romans chapter 16, you find that Phoebe was a, was a deacon. A woman was a deacon. If the implication is they had to be male, then Phoebe wasn't following Paul's instruction. Distinguish between what's possible and necessary. Was it necessary that a woman could not serve as a deacon? And I don't think it's necessary that a woman cannot serve as an elder. So the big picture of scripture, a different understanding of the key texts, and lastly, what has moved me is a historical perspective on women in ministry. Women in public ministry is a historic distinctive of evangelicalism. Uh, from one perspective, you could say that the evangelical movement began in the 1730s with a man named John Wesley who founded the Methodist denomination. He was a, a, a rabid evangelist. Came out of the Anglican church and he was concerned about decorum. And at the beginning of his ministry, he didn't want women preaching because he didn't think it was proper. But then he looked around him and he saw the kind of impact that we're women were having in terms of evangelism, in terms of preaching, and he began to, he began to change his tune. He, he looked at a Hannah Harrison and a Sarah Cros, Crosby and an Ann Cutler and a Mary Fletcher. And pretty soon he said, no, no we need them preaching because God is using them to reach the world. Mary Fletcher is interesting. She was a single woman preaching and being effective and then she married her husband John and John and Mary started a church together and they were in line to take over the Methodist denomination when Wesley died John died and Mary took over the church and ran it as the senior pastor the church that they had started then you have it wasn't just going on with the Methodists you had Lady Huntington Lady Huntington was a strong Calvinist not only did she found her own church, but she established her own seminary uh, that taught preachers. And then she formed her own Calvinistic denomination that still exists today. And do you know that George Whitfield was happy to sit under her authority and her teaching because she was having such an impact for the gospel. And then there's William and Catherine Booth. They're the two people who founded the Salvation Army. And from the very beginning, they encouraged women preachers and leaders. Catherine wrote a book called A Woman's Right to Preach. And their daughter Evangeline eventually became the head of the denomination of the Salvation Army. And she spoke all over the world. Now these are Bible-believing evangelicals who are promoting women in leadership. Do you know that Phoebe Palmer was one of the most famous preachers and popular preachers of the 19th century. Wheaton College, uh, an evangelical institution, 
was actually the first in 1860 to open up all of their classes to women so that women would have the same opportunity to learn as men. And they taught women homiletics and theology. And they even had women on the faculty. In fact, the first full-time Bible teacher at Wheaton was a woman named Edith Torrey. In the early 1900s, uh, the Baptists, you know, those staunch Baptists, ordained 50 women for ministry. Moody Bible Institute is kind of the flagship institute of the Christian evangelical movement. It was founded by a woman, Emma Dreyer, who partnered with Moody. And the institute, Moody, boasted about the number of women graduates from their school who went on to ordained ministry. And then you have Henrietta Mears. Henrietta Mears was the Christian education director at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. She was the one who founded Gospel Light. While she was at the church, she always taught the college class. And she had, class. She had a number of men in that class who went on to have a significant impact in the history of evangelicalism. Men like Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade. Dawson Trotman, founder of The Navigators. Jay Rayburn, founder of Young Life. And Billy Graham, who you may have heard of someplace. All these men sat under her teaching, and all these men will tell you that she was one of the best Bible teachers they ever had. Had the Evangelical Free Church, a thriving, healthy denomination who in 1925 allowed women to be ordained. You have people like A.J. Gordon, who Gordon Conwell College, Gordon Conwell Seminary is named after, and Gordon College is named after, who defended in writing in 1894 the right of women to preach, be ordained. And you have A.T. Pearson, one of the editors of the Schofield Bible Reference Bible. He was for women preaching. And you have A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance who was for women preaching and being ordained. All these men have been considered ardent fundamentalists, and yet they were pro-women in leadership. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is women in public ministry is a historic and countercultural distinctive of the evangelical movement. And it was precisely because of their commitment to the Bible and the gospel and for hundreds of years, we have promoted women in leadership. So you have to ask the question, what happened? Well, there are a number of cultural things that went on, but one of them is that historically, after World War II, there was a cultural backlash that began to restrict the roles of women. And suddenly in, in evangelical circles, it wasn't good enough for people to go to a Bible school. They needed to go to a seminary and the seminaries wanted respectability. So they began to imitate the liberal and mainline seminaries which restricted the ministry of women. In fact, Harvard Divinity School did not allow women in until 1955. And even then would not have a woman on the faculty. We did it because we were caving to the culture. I like what Timothy Larson, who put that history together, he writes this. He says, having women preachers and ministers is not, is not the historic stance of theological liberalism or of mainline denominations, but of Bible-believing, gospel-spreading evangelicals. 
throughout their history when evangelicals have cared more about the Bible and the gospel than they did about being perceived as respectable by, respectable by the wider society, these commitments have often led them to affirm women in public ministry. And it's interesting because we don't know our history. We sit back and we think, oh, you're caving to liberalism. You're giving in to the culture. Not at all. We're just reclaiming our historic roots. We need to reclaim our heritage. And that includes having women use their gifts to the fullest extent in ministry. So the big picture of scriptures, a different understanding of key texts, and a historical perspective on women in ministry, all those have shifted my understanding of what we have to have women do in our midst. People will differ on this issue. Good people, thoughtful people, smart people. And that's okay. But I'm uncomfortable with us restricting women in our church. And I want you, I want to challenge you to prayerfully, thoughtfully, consider the recommendation that the elders are putting before you. Pray, read, talk. And you guys have been great. We've had great conversations uh, that have been respectful, filled with humility and listening, and I have really appreciated that. I want that to continue. In fact, today, after this service, there'll be a town hall meeting in room 201, and we can just have a dialogue. So does this really matter? Does this really make a difference? I think so. I think it matters because I think the church is missing out. We are falling far short of God's vision for us as a church. I think it matters because we are putting a stumbling block in in the way of people hearing and receiving the gospel who are trying to find Christ. I, I think it matters because we're failing to nurture half of the church to reach their full potential in Christ. I think it matters because the church is supposed to be this community where the curse is pushed back and thus we are supposed to model a different sort of relationship between men and women. And I think it matters because we will be held accountable. Now I said before, I do not think this is an issue that you break fellowship over. And if this recommendation is not affirmed by 75% of the congregation and it fails, I am not leaving. The unity of the body is more important. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. But I do think it's something we have to carefully consider and wrestle with.